Please follow as I read from God's holy word, the book of Luke, chapter 24, verses 33 to 53. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do your doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting his, up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. Amen, church. Amen. The Lord is risen. Let's try that again. The Lord is risen. Yeah. Ah, hallelujah. Gusto. I love it. What a joyful morning to be alive. Two days ago, Friday evening, we spent a service right here in this room and we focused on Jesus' humiliation. We focused on his wrongful accusation and condemnation. We focused on his being mocked and scourged. And we focused on his shameful crucifixion, all of which were things he did not deserve. Nevertheless, he faced them on our behalf. But aren't you glad the story doesn't end there? We wouldn't be sitting here this morning if it did. Our Savior was laid in a tomb. But my brothers and sisters, that tomb is empty. He is not here, for he has risen. This morning, I want to look at Jesus' exaltation. 
We want to see how Jesus has been exalted because he was humiliated. We want to see that because Jesus humbled himself, even to the point of death on a cross, he has now been exalted to the right hand of the Father. He is in glory beyond our comprehension. So I want to ask two questions this morning. Number one, how has Jesus been exalted? And two, how does his exaltation relate to us today? How has Jesus been exalted? And how does that exaltation relate to us today? So let's dive in. I want to give you a heads up that I'm going to be all over the New Testament this morning. Friday, we hovered around Matthew 27 because that showed us the ways in which Jesus was humiliated. This morning, we're going to start in Luke, but we're not going to stay there for the entire message. There's not really a single text that captures all the ways that Jesus has been exalted. So we're going to do some scripture traveling. We're going to be all over the New Testament to see the different ways that Jesus has been exalted. But first, what is exaltation? What does that mean? Exaltation, here's a definition for you, is the act of elevating someone in rank, power, or character. Exaltation is the act of elevating someone in rank, power, or character. In the army, if you are promoted from a private to a sergeant, that's an elevation. The act of elevating someone in rank, power, or character. Now you may notice that definition is the opposite of our definition of humiliation from our Good, service, Good Friday service. The definition of humiliation was to reduce someone to a lower position. Jesus was reduced, but now he is exalted. I want to look this morning at four ways that he has been exalted. And here's the first one in your notes. Jesus has been exalted through his resurrection. Jesus has been exalted through his resurrection. I'm going to read back over Luke 24, 36 through 43. You can follow along as I read. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still disbelieving for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Jesus has been exalted through his resurrection. When Jesus arose, he conquered death. His resurrection was proof that he was victorious over death. Jesus' resurrection exalts him because it shows that he has conquered the grave and no one else can make that claim. And as proof that he actually rose from the dead, Jesus showed his disciples his resurrected body. Did you notice that from the text? Luke 24 reveals that Jesus rose, and when he rose, he was given a new body, a resurrected body. He demonstrates to his disciples that he is back from the dead, but not as a ghost, not as a spirit, not as something disembodied, but with a body. And that is significant 
because it shows how Jesus' resurrection is different from other resuscitations. Jesus actually isn't the only one back from the dead. This has happened before. Think of Lazarus. We studied Mark chapter 5 a few weeks ago and the little girl that Jesus brought back to life. And there are others. But you see, they came back to that same body. That same broken body. That same body that is infected with sin. They were resuscitated. When Jesus came back, he was resurrected. He was given a new body. A body that is whole and strong and pure and will not die again. That's the body that your Savior was given. 1 Corinthians 15.20 tells us, But in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. Now that's exciting. It's exciting that our Lord and Savior has risen from the dead and been given a new body. But you know what? That's exciting for us as well because we are promised resurrected bodies. We will have bodies like His one day. That verse in 1 Corinthians it tells us that Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And that word first fruits, that's a term that related to the feast of first fruits, which was honored by the Israelites and recorded for us in Leviticus chapter 23. The first fruits were the first sheaves of the harvest that were brought to the Lord. And by doing that, God promised Israel that the rest of the harvest would follow that he would provide. Jesus, by being the first fruits in the resurrection, is a foreshadowing of our future resurrection. It's a guarantee that our resurrected body is coming. It's a promise of our resurrection. We will receive bodies like his and thus share in his exaltation. So let me encourage you, every time you feel those aches and pains... Every time you sense that something is not quite right, every morning that you crawl out of bed and it was harder than the morning before, you remind yourself, my resurrected body is coming. It is coming because Christ is risen. Jesus is exalted through his resurrection. The second way we see Jesus exalted is through his ascension. Jesus is exalted through his ascension. Luke 24, 50 through 53 reads, And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. When he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. After Jesus rose... He spent 40 days with his disciples. Acts tells us he spent this time presenting himself to them with many proofs. But after that time, Jesus led his disciples out of town and he was carried up into heaven. They watched him ascend into heaven. And this event was to demonstrate that Jesus didn't just vanish. He didn't rise from the dead, show himself to the disciples, and then just disappeared and no one could find him at some point. No, he went somewhere. And the whole ascension was to demonstrate to the disciples that he's going somewhere. He went back to heaven. He went back to be with the Father. He went home. 
Jesus went, and this is important, Jesus went to a place with spatial properties. Spatial, not special. You might think I misquoted myself. Spatial, not special. Spatial. S-P-A-T-I-A-L. And that means to occupy space. Heaven is a real place. It's spiritual, yes, but that doesn't mean it's ethereal. That doesn't mean it's ghostly. That doesn't mean it's this place of vapor. Heaven is a real place. I want you to think of heaven, think of going to heaven like going to Narnia. I'm not saying that heaven is Narnia. I'm saying it's a place different than our world with tangible elements. Just because heaven is spiritual doesn't mean that it's not tangible. In fact, Revelation refers to heaven with tangible elements. In Revelation chapter 4, John is taken up to heaven and he sees a throne room. And he sees Jesus' throne. And he sees the thrones of the 24 elders. And he sees a sea of glass like crystal. He sees living creatures. When Isaiah went to the throne room in Isaiah chapter 6, he describes the train of the Lord's robe. Why the train? Because the sight of the Lord must have been too awesome to write down. But nonetheless, it's tangible. There is a tangibleness to heaven, and that's where Jesus goes. He is exalted back into heaven. And how does that relate to us? Well, you want to know what's amazing? Is that he promised that we too will join him in heaven. John 14 verses 2 and 3 tell us, Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus right now is getting things ready for you and I to join him. He is preparing a place for you and for me to join him forever. I once heard somebody say that if God took six years, or six, I'm sorry, if God took six days to create this planet, imagine how glorious heaven is going to be. He's been preparing it for 2,000 years. Now he promises to come back and get us. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus ascends, and Luke actually describes something that he didn't describe in Luke 24. Luke actually tells us in Acts 1 that the disciples were in such awe as they were watching Jesus ascend that they just kept staring into the sky till angels came and said to them, this is Acts 1, 10, and 11, while they were gazing into the heaven as he went, behold, two angels stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He will come back in the way he left. He will come back and he will get us. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 reads, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. My friends, if Jesus doesn't tarry till our deaths, then we will meet him in the air. 
And I'm going to be honest with you about something. I hope I'm alive when this happens. I really hope that I am alive when what we call the rapture happens, where we are caught up and we meet Jesus in the air, because that would be amazing. That would be awesome. But if I do die before that happens, I still go to heaven. And that's pretty amazing. Jesus is coming back to take us with him. And I want to encourage you to hold on to that future event. That is our hope. And when I say hope, I don't mean something that we strongly desire to happen, but we're not sure. When I say hope, I mean it is for sure guaranteed that he will return to get us. Jesus is coming back, and I want that thought to encourage you in whatever difficulty you are facing today. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18 reads as thus, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Whatever struggles we face during our time on earth, I don't mean to minimize them, but in light of what's coming, they are light. They are momentary. Yes, in the moment, they are hard and trying and painful. But when you and I step onto the other side of this life and into the arms of Jesus, then everything that we faced in this life will seem as a bad dream. It's light. It's momentary. We are headed to the place where Jesus is. We will join him either in death or when he comes back. Does that sound silly to you? Maybe you're sitting here this morning and what I'm saying sounds ridiculous. Maybe you're even thinking, do all these people really believe this? Do they believe that some Jewish carpenter who lived 2,000 years ago is actually going to come back and meet them in the sky? I assure you that's exactly what we believe. Why? Why would we believe that? It seems, well, it just, it just plain seems silly from a human perspective. Why would we believe that? Well, let me answer that by saying this. This is Easter morning. Say, duh. This is Easter morning. We celebrate the fact that our Savior is risen from the dead. And if you have trouble believing that, then I would ask you this. How do you account for the empty tomb? Jesus died on a cross. That's verified historically. He was laid in a tomb. What happened to the body? You could say, well, the disciples stole it. That's a popular theory. The disciples stole the body, and that's why it disappeared. But then you have to reason something. You have to reason out that these scared fishermen overcame well-trained Roman guards, that they moved a huge stone that they took the body of Jesus away and disposed of it. Then you have to reason that they spent their entire lives proclaiming that Jesus rose from the dead while facing persecution, while facing execution for something they knew was a lie. Friends, that doesn't hold weight. What happened to the body of Jesus? You have to say that something happened to it because... When his disciples were preaching that Jesus had risen from the dead, all the Romans had to do, all the Jewish leaders had to do to prove them wrong, 
was to go get the body. When the disciples were proclaiming that Jesus is risen, all they had to do was go dig him up out of the grave and say, no, he's right here. But they couldn't do that. That would have been the end of Christianity. And they couldn't do that. Why? Because the grave was empty. So if you're here this morning and you're thinking all of this is silly, then please, don't leave here without talking to us this morning. The elders will be standing up here after the service. Come talk to us about why we believe what we believe. Jesus rose from the dead. He defeated sin. He defeated death. And those who accept him will go on to live with him forever. He will come back and he will get them. Do you want to be one of them? Then come talk to us after the service. We've seen two ways that Jesus has been exalted. By the way, I'm excited this morning. Can you tell? This is something to celebrate. We've, we've seen two ways that Jesus has been exalted. He's been exalted through his resurrected, resurrection, and he's been exalted through his ascension. Thirdly, Jesus has been exalted through his session. You say, what? I say, yeah, session. S-E-S-S-I-O-N. This is a term that theologians use to refer to Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. Jesus is exalted into heaven, but beyond that, he's exalted to the throne. Ephesians 1, 20 and 21 tells us this, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Jesus is seated on the throne at the right hand of the Father and has been given all rule and authority and power and dominion. He went to sit on the throne as the Son who conquered and returned. Hebrews 1.3 reads, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. Now what does that mean? It means that Jesus now occupies the highest authority next to the Father. The right hand is seen as a place of power, authority, and honor, and that's where Jesus is. And you know what else? This is probably also a picture of his completed work. He sits as a picture of his completed work. His time of suffering is done. The work that he did on the cross and the grave is done. To use his words, it is finished. So he sits as one who has finished his work. Jesus sits at the right hand of God and he receives the highest of names. He receives all power and authority and part of that is a name. Philippians 2.9 reads, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This new name, this name Jesus, is the name above all names, and it communicates his power and his authority. This probably doesn't mean that Jesus is, is, is a brand new name. He still had that name when he, had, when he was on earth. He, rather, he had that name while he was on earth. Rather, the verse doesn't mean it's brand new. What it means is it's new in significance. The name Jesus or Yeshua in the Hebrew would not have held much significance in the eyes of the people of his day. There would have been others named Yeshua. But now, the name Jesus is very significant. In fact, when someone is talking about Jesus, we know exactly who they're talking about. 
It's a name that is above every other name bestowed on him by the Father. Jesus is exalted through his session. Now, how does this relate to us? Believe it or not, we are promised authority. We are promised to rule and reign with him. We are promised seats in glory. Ephesians 2, 5 and 6 read, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We have been raised and are seated with Christ. Not at the same position as Christ. He alone is at the right hand of the Father. But we have also been seated with Christ. Now you say, wait a minute. I'm not sitting in heaven. It's a good observation. You and I still walk this earth. Don't forget, for those who have accepted Jesus Christ, there is an already not yet aspect to our Christian walk. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. We belong to Christ. We are spiritually alive. We have been promised heaven. It is guaranteed. Everything that Christ has promised is ours. We have it, but not quite yet. It's already, but not yet. Think of this as a reservation. When you call to reserve a seat at a restaurant, in theory, they're supposed to save that seat for you. No one else is supposed to be able to sit there. Well, friends, if you are a believer in Jesus, there is a seat in heaven with your name on it. And no one can take that seat but you. It is guaranteed. One day, you will join Jesus and the saints and sit as your Savior sits. Revelation 3.21 says, the one who conquers that is the one who conquers by holding fast their faith in Jesus Christ, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. It's coming. It's coming. For those of you who believe in Jesus Christ, you have a seat in heaven. Don't lose sight of your seat. Don't be discouraged to the point that you forget that there's a seat in heaven for you. The life, this life seems long and hard and it sure is. But friends, when you feel the weight of this life on your shoulder, you remember your seat in heaven is waiting for you. How is Jesus exalted? Through his resurrection, through his ascension, through his session, and finally, through his return. Jesus will be exalted when he returns. Now we've already talked about how Jesus is going to come back and he's going to meet us in the air, but that's not the only reason he comes back. He comes back for other reasons, one of which is to judge the world. John 5, 27 and 29 reads, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus is coming back to judge the world. 
Revelation 12, or 2012 expounds on this when it says, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. This will be both a great and terrible day. Jesus will judge the dead according to their deeds. Those who put their faith in Jesus will receive eternal life. Those who rejected Jesus will receive eternal death. That's hell, and it's forever. Jesus is coming back to judge, and this exalts him because he is the only one worthy to judge the world. Jesus is the only one who is sinless. He is the only one who knows the thoughts and intentions of man. So he is the one who can rightly judge the world. But you know what? That's only one of the reasons why he's coming back. He's coming back for other reasons. Another one is this. He's coming back to right every wrong. He's coming back to right every wrong. Revelation 21, 3 and 4 reads this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Jesus is exalted because he is the only one with the power to undo the effects of sin. He is the only one with the power to undo the effects of sin. The tears that we read about in Revelation 21 are tears that have been caused by sin. The pain, the horrors, the death, the destruction that's caused by sin, all of it will be undone. He will wipe away our tears. Every wrong done to you will be undone. Every pain you've ever known will be relieved. Every stain of sin will be removed. He will wipe away your tears. Jesus is exalted. He is exalted through his resurrection, through his ascension, through his session, and through his return. So then how should we respond to Jesus' exaltation? The same way we respond to his humiliation, through worship and obedience. We respond to Jesus' exaltation through worship and obedience. Jesus is exalted, and that, my friends, is cause for worship. And we've already done that this morning, amen? And that was great, but don't let it stop at Sunday morning. Jesus has risen from the dead, and that means victory, and it's worth celebrating every day. In fact, it's the greatest thing to celebrate. So worship him. How do we do that? Maybe some of you wonder that question. How do we worship Jesus? What's it all about? Well, worship is first and foremost understanding the truth of God. John 4, 24, Jesus said, God is spirit 
And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. To worship Jesus, we must wrap our minds around who God is. And you might think, that's impossible. And you'd be right. We can't and we never will fully comprehend God, but in order to worship him, we must understand to the best of our ability who it is we're worshiping. We have, we have to have a right understanding of who God is and the only place where God is revealed is in his word. Let me give you an example. The Bible tells us God is creator and sustainer. He brought everything into being and he holds it all together. So who are you worshiping? The creator and sustainer of everything. And that's only the beginning. And that doesn't even scratch the surface of who God is. The exaltation of Jesus Christ should cause us to worship our great and awesome Savior for all that he is and for all that he's done. So wrap your minds around that as best you can and then wrap your hearts around that. What do I mean? There should be a spiritual or an emotional response to what we know about God. When we sing his truths, our minds should comprehend them and our hearts should rejoice in them. The more we understand who God is, the more that should awaken our hearts a love and devotion and proper fear of our Lord. John Piper says, the inner essence of worship is the response of the heart to the knowledge of the mind when the mind is rightly understanding God and the heart is rightly valuing God. Know God in the mind and let that move you in your heart. That's worship. The exaltation of Jesus should also cause us to obey him. It should be a motivation to obey him. Why? Because he deserves our obedience? Yes, he does. But that's not the main reason why we should obey. Here's the thing. We should not obey Jesus out of a sense of duty. We should not obey Jesus out of a desire to make him happy with us. We should obey Jesus from a place of love. It should be a loving response. And friends, that makes all the difference. You might think, what is the difference? It makes all the difference. Because when we obey Jesus out of a sense of duty or out of some desire to try to make ourselves pleasing to him, the motivation is wrong. It's legalism. It's trying to earn his favor and it doesn't work. If you're a believer in Jesus, he's already pleased with you. He's already done all the work. So there's nothing you can do to make him happy with you. He's already done it all. So obey from the motivation of love. Your Savior loves you. Love him back and let that fuel your obedience. Jesus is exalted. He's no longer in the grave. He took the cross he took the shame, and now he sits in glory at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning and loving beyond our comprehension. 
So Harvest, let me encourage you, set your eyes on that picture of our Savior. That's your Savior. That's the exalted one. Set your minds on that and let that motivate you to worship and obey. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, he who conquered the sin and the grave, receive our worship this morning. You are worthy of worship. Receive our song. Receive our praise. Receive our adoration. Receive our thanks. Receive our prayers. We worship you who sit now at the right hand of the Father. And we implore you, Lord, help us. Help us to be obedient. Help us to obey you, not from a wrong desire to gain your approval, but out of love and gratitude for all you've done. Empower us to obey. We thank you. We praise you. And we say this in the great name of Jesus and all God's people said,